New York City's newspaper The Daily Bugle has revealed that Spider-Man has been robbing banks in his alter ego as Electro. The former professional wrestler has been exposed in an investigative report by the paper's editor, J. Jonah Jameson. In other news, the supposed Norse deity Thor has been causing millions of dollars worth of property damage in what onlookers described as a tantrum, as has a robot of unknown origin. The two have recently been seen in combat, as has Thor, in turn, with his erstwhile teammate Giant Man, and Giant Man himself with what has been described as a medieval knight in armor riding a winged horse. In the course of their battle, a multi-million dollar roller coaster was destroyed. And industrialist Tony Stark's lackey Iron Man has been spotted in China. There is rampant speculation about what that might mean for Sino-Latvian relations. This is Doombot WS15 for the VOL. Zero, zero, 009. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, 009. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Law Doom sees it. And now, our weekly feature on the history of our world's greatest hero, Victor Von Doom, with your host Douglas Woe, by special arrangement with Universe 1218. Thank you, Doom Battle 35. This week we're going to be talking about Fantastic Four number 23, cover dated February 1964. My guest for today's show is Patrick A. Reed. Patrick is an associate curator for the touring exhibition Marvel Universe of Superheroes. He's also a journalist and historian, one of whose specialties is the relationship between hip-hop and comic book culture. Welcome, Patrick. We are looking today at Fantastic Four, number 23, a very, very odd issue. This was uh, drawn by Jack Kirby, scripted by Stan Lee. The inker is George Bell, aka George Rousseau, and it gets right into it with a baby dinosaur. Yeah, well, I mean, as the cover says, it's another mighty milestone in Marvel Comics, and they do not waste a moment. Um, you flip to that first page, and uh, yeah, there's a baby dinosaur running through, I, I guess, was it even the Baxter building yet at this point? Had they it established was, it was that? It definitely as, the Baxter building, yes. Okay, I wasn't yeah. sure if they'd established that as the official name of the uh, the building at this point, okay. um, because I frankly can't keep up with all of the random retcons of starting in Central City and ending up in New York and all the rest of the, the as they were making it up as they went along for the first however many issues, um, there's a sense of freedom over continuity that I find incredibly charming. <laughs> yeah. But it also makes it very difficult to keep these things straight in my head. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this is a baby dinosaur that has popped in from Dr. Doom's time platform. Apparently, while Reed had his back to it, uh, and it's you know, it just makes the action start right away. It is Kirby being full on Kirby, uh, and also a chance for the FF to display their powers within the first page and a half, which is also something that for the first couple of years of Fantastic Four they always had to do, always, always. Yeah, and one of the craziest things about it is that, given that um, you know. There, there's all of those intricacies of the Lee and Kirby working dynamic that none of us were there for. Right. So it is unclear at what point um, the communication became a little more distant and the full plot became almost completely Jack's domain. Right. And but given his notorious poor memory, 
it, this is one of the moments where I'm like, did he remember that there was a time platform? Because he didn't have reference materials around most of the time. So I have to wonder if that was a directive editorially from Stan as like, let's use that. Let's throw this in there to bring Dr. Doom back. Or if it was Jack suddenly remembering five or six appearances later that, oh yeah, there's this device and that'll allow us to start with a dinosaur. Yeah. Because either one seems equally possible just from a textual reading. Yeah, I mean, it, it lets you start with a dinosaur, but it also connects directly to Doom. It's now towards the end of the story, as we'll see like what's going on and who is getting to call the shots on what's going on get a lot more complicated but in the beginning it's 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 fairly straightforward you know there's a dinosaur there's invisible force fields and there's fire and there's stretchiness and there's the thing uh being getting thin. run over by a baby dinosaur so and, and feeling sorry for himself like that is yeah. a superpower exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah there's you know there's also that ongoing nagging continuity question of how did they get the time machine from Doom's castle to the Baxter building? And how does it end up back in Doom's possession at some point later? Again, that's something that I'm not sure if it was ever addressed or... It was settled. It's settled in Fantastic Four Annual Number 11, which is how it could be out of Doom's castle and also in Doom's castle. Okay. Well... Uh, um, it, is a, it is a time machine, so it is possible for it to loop around and be a moment. Move itself through yeah. time. In, yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess that makes sense. There's also the question of how it was just spontaneously triggered to bring a yeah. dinosaur to the present. That's um, a fun question. Did the dinosaur happen to, you know, find something in the past that triggered it? Um, you know, there's none of these questions are answered because none of them, frankly, matter. The yeah. whole point is there's a dinosaur. Yeah, <laughs> there you go, baby uh, dinosaur. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the perfect sort of uh, Kirby-esque throw things immediately at the viewer and draw what you want to draw and make it really exciting right from the get-go. And yeah. you know those elements of logic and things again, they're making it up as they go along. This is still early enough in the Marvel universe that the rules aren't firmly established, and even if they are, they will probably break them again momentarily. So yeah, so th they uh, managed to put the baby dinosaur to sleep thanks to Sue's invisible force field, which is a fairly new power she has at this stage, and that's important because that's a thing that not everybody knows that she can do force fields. So. That's another sort of opening scene that doesn't seem to be establishing something, actually establishing something that we'll see later on. Dino gets sent back home, and then uh, Reed, who has been a super jerk already for the first couple pages, becomes even more of a jerk than he normally is and stays that way for the rest of the story. Yeah, the, uh, the, the your alleged minds um, in reference to his teammates, uh, he's, he's definitely um, on his... Uh, fantastically high horse uh, yeah right from the get-go you have to wonder if that doom is you know, switch places with him again yeah i i also i mean there's again the characterization also wavers wildly from issue to issue sometimes from page to page yeah. and um at this point we've at least settled into ben Grimm likes to feel sorry for himself yeah but the rest of the personalities aside from johnny's a hothead and uh seuss Storm Richards is the girl. Um, there's not a lot of uh, other real character devices set in stone yet. All those traits are just sort of fluctuating as they go. But they are building on what's been there already. Like you can, you can look at any of their dialogue and see that's a Ben line, that's a Johnny line, that's a Sue line. Uh, that, like, that's a thing that Stanley is really good at. 
but what's happening here, like plot-wise, they they've decided to decide who's the new leader of the group. How are they the kind of group that can pick a leader? They are a family, right? Effectively. Yeah. Although uh, the, I, I I do enjoy Sue's like I can't let my personal feelings <laughs> interfere. I agree. We should choose a different leader. Like yeah. it's it's immediately the retaliation to Reed being such a jerk is immediately like. Like you know, his power. Um, like, okay, you're you're that insecure. Sure, we'll, right. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, so so we we cut away from the sort of familial bickering to uh, the establishing our our new heavies for this issue, who are the terrible trio, who live up to their name. They are terrible. They, they are. Um... It's Bo Brogan, handsome Harry Phillips, and Yogi Dakor. <sighs> yeah. I would like to be able to say that this is the only time they ever appeared. It is not. They did turn up again. They were in a couple of Human Torch stories in Strange Tales. They were in Marvel 2-in-1. They were in Penance Relentless back in the 2000s when Speedball got really grim and gritty and started wearing yeah. an s and suit. Right. They yeah. Came back. As a lifelong New Warriors fan, I uh, tend to block out that whole period of yeah. uh, post-Civil War Marvel. Penance Relentless is, is genuinely not a terrible comic. It really is not. It's not good, but it's it's not it's not a disaster. I was really pleased to discover. Uh, yeah, as uh, one of my common phrases when I discover something, um, I, I have this conversation repeatedly with a couple of my friends. Where it's like, oh my gosh, have you heard or seen or read this thing? No, is it any good? Well, no, but it exists. Which, <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, <laughs> and that's uh, that. You know, that, that definitely comes up a lot when I'm discussing comics of uh, the 90s and beyond. Yes. So um, we, we, we see these these three new characters and uh, there is a, a mysterious figure with sunglasses that's thinking like, He is not the one I seek. I must wait longer. I must be patient. And on the next page, that mysterious figure is revealed as a Doombot. Doombots can think. And his, uh, the, the moment prior to that where he reveals that he is a doom bot by simply collapsing on the floor is <laughs> like such a great weird little Kirby just yeah. throw that in and like all right well we've figured out where's this character how are we going to reveal he's a robot he just collapses yeah and, and falls apart. boom he's a robot yeah uh and uh, so they hear a mysterious voice coming from a speaker who introduces the three of them very conveniently that describes their various crimes and sins and boom it's dr doom to the extent that anybody is Dr. Doom. Just, you know, he gets his robot to bring them there. He speaks from a speaker and then he reveals himself as having been standing behind a door the entire time, you know, for a little bit of added drama. He's a showman. It's all about the theatrical movements. A thing that I keep coming back to with Dr. Doom is that the, the issue that I have with a lot of Doom stories mm -hmm. um, is that my sort of canon of Doom is, you know, the Leah Kirby Fantastic Fours. Oddly, not even... I feel like even John Byrne was a little inconsistent in terms of character motivation um, yeah. through his run, but then like Simonson, uh, the Roger Stern issues around 300, um, that, that is, that's, there's a sequence in 300 where um, he shows up in a cameo before Johnny and Alicia's wedding. Spoilers for anybody who is still back in the, you know, first half dozen or two dozen issues of uh, Fantastic Four, but he shows up for Johnny and Alicia's wedding. Um, he shows up in a cameo in Latveria and then disappears and at the end of the story uh, a crate has shown up that he has he has sent flowers for the wedding um, and it's arguably a threat 
and a uh, peace offering simultaneously. But that that whole ethic of doom where there was that very strong sense of honor and the only thing stronger than his sense of honor is pride. But because of that, his pride also drives him to often choose a more magisterial role as opposed to like, he still wants to look good. He wants to look like he is the monarch and the hero, even though he has no interest in being that. So his pride is still the driving motivation in making him occasionally noble. In some ways, this is the textbook definition of toxic masculinity. Yes. Well, like you hide yourself behind armor so that nobody can ever see you have a tiny little scar. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and yet I would, I would put a, you know, doom at least has on some level a code that you can work with. And that pride makes him um, both a formidable opponent and also malleable in certain situations. Yeah. Um, you know, Dr. Doom can be uh, manipulated in a way that um, people who don't have any motivation other than, you know, profit or ruling the world cannot because they will stop at nothing and Doom will stop at anything that makes him look bad. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Doom is, has just made his dramatic entrance whereupon we immediately cut away to the Fantastic Four having internal familial problems again. And voting uh, for their new leader. <laughs> and voting for their new leader. So the three who are not Reed each cast their vote for themselves. Yes. Cue a fight. The detail of you know the invisible girl having the beautiful cursive lettering <laughs> thing being all in all caps block letters and torch you know you know no no human no, nothing else just torch as they save the other doom all caps when you spell the man's name exactly <laughs> uh, so they 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 fight for a couple pages until Reed shows up in this fantastic and not terribly characteristic pose of just kind of like leaning against a wall with this look of gentle contempt. And it's like, ugh, I can't even trust you not to mess up the place. It's also almost like a Mae West pose there. It kind of is, yeah. Contempt, but it's also slightly like sultry, like, well, <laughs> hello, boys, even fighting without me around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he corrals them in his arms in its sort of odd gesture of affection. And then, because Reed's a jerk, hands them all brooms. Bless you, Reed. Yes. Bless you. We go back to Doom, who is now giving our terrible trio superpowers thanks to his XZ12 device. Yes. A, a trademark Lee and Kirby like convoluted plot is already happening, where <laughs> there seem to be five more steps than would be needed to appropriately like get to this point. But it allows for a lot of cool devices and a lot of hyper-dramatic dialogue. <laughs> yeah, so uh, and you can see Lee trying to make the best of what he's been handed here. Handsome Harry now has super hearing, so he can hear a feather falling. Bull Brogan is now extra super strong, but not, the text clarifies, as strong as the thing. He's right. just stronger, and uh, Yogi Decor is now fireproof. All of which seem like incredibly valuable things for at least three of the Fantastic Four. Well, the accursed Richards is no match for Doom himself, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Apparently, yeah, something like that. So we, we uh, cut away from this to a scene where we see yet another one of the innumerable daily newspapers that Marvel's New York had at this point. Yeah. This is the Daily Bulletin, 
what's the what's in the author daily bulletin was it, it a thing that just existed for a couple of weeks in you know 1964 or something like that well uh, i apparently it also you know imported the newsboys direct from the 1930s um <laughs> like the another one of those brilliant jack kirby street scenes where everyone is wearing a fedora and all the kids have page boy caps and <laughs> Like it's it's a tradition that was established right off the bat with the uh, the Bowery Haven of Lost Souls. Right. <laughs> in that first thumbnail issue, like it's it's this weirdly time locked New York that's recognizable to some degree, but it's for someone who lived in New York, it's almost like he built a New York out of half formed childhood memories and half from the movies that he was watching on TV while he was drawing an issue. To be fair, the the Kennedy presidency was still in memory hats were not all the way out right. but yeah this newsboy is a newsboy legion newsboy if i've ever seen newsboy legion newsboy <laughs> exactly uh and the newsboy is announcing uh there's a there's an extradition that uh there is a wealthy maharaja who is about to gift johnny storm with a marvel car a marvel car he likes hot rods I'm also impressed that apparently the Daily Bulletin's early edition was, you know, Human Torch to get Marvel Car. It appears that it's a final edition by the time that Johnny is reading it with a completely different headline. Yeah. Only car of its kind in the world and Torch has but to claim it. To be fair, I would have paid 10 cents to read that story. So Reed is off doing an experiment. Ben is being self-pitying because the Yancey Street Gang is making fun of him. Sue is testing her invisibility control. Sue is the one who's really interested in developing her powers right about now. That's going to pay off. And of course, you know, Stan is hanging a lantern on Jack having drawn this scene. That, that, that's, that's the focus. So we see the car, and it's a beautiful Kirby Tech car. It just looks like a thing that character in a Jack Kirby comic is drawing and nobody else has ever gotten to drive. Yeah, well, I mean, it is the only one of its kind in the world, as the headline says. That's true takes off with uh, Yogi Dakar, who has uh, presented him with it. And Johnny's just like racing toward it, like he can't get to it fast enough. Mm -hmm. How many hot rods does he own? Uh, well, I mean, he melted the one in FF1. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. He, mm -hmm. he seems to go through them rather quickly, to be fair. So. Yeah. It is only when he's driving off in it that he discovers that he's locked into it with a cigarette smoker. The worst. I'm the worst. You know, it was it was commonplace at the time, though. I mean, yeah. I'm old enough to remember, you know, smoking on planes, but like smoking sections. So you could, of course, not even like taking the windows down. Rude, rude. So Johnny figures he can outsmoke him by catching on fire. Tries to smoke him out, doesn't work. Tries to light him on fire, that also doesn't work. Right. And uh, then gets knocked out by nerve gas. It's a heck of a page. It's just another day in the life of Johnny Storm, though. I mean, you're an original art person, right? Uh, yeah, I, I deal with a lot in my uh, day job of uh, associate curator for the Marvel Universe of Superheroes exhibition. I collect, although on a relatively small scale, because you know, I um, I live in New York and my right. resources and wall space are incredibly limited. So at this point, is Jack Kirby writing a lot of kind of marginal notes on his his artwork? There, there were marginal notes um, that appear. I mean, there. To be fair, the, the there's a lot of pages from this era that I've seen that have been locked in frames for years. Um, I haven't, I, I haven't had the opportunity to study a lot from the first twenty five issues. Right. Um, I've seen a lot from uh, the Miracle Man issue. There's yeah. 
uh, there's a bunch of those pages that continually show up and then disappear back into someone's collection for another year. Um, and throughout, I mean, there's, you know, there's some notes uh, just sort of, but they're very much, they are less plot and more clarifying the drawing at this point. Um, it's, it, it, there is a very clear move from, I think, clarification to direction that begins to happen once, uh, say probably by the late 30s, okay. um, early 40s is the point where you start to see like Jack's notes are, he's beginning to direct what's to be done with his drawings instead of simply saying, here's what's happening. But at this point, uh, I'm just wondering if there's any kind of extant explanation on original art of any, any of these scenes, because there's some odd scenes in this issue. There's all of these pages that are just Johnny. There's two page sequences of the thing just sort of roaming around the city, dealing with street urchins. There's nothing clearly defining this as tied to the earlier story because it's just another Jack Kirby guy in a page boy cap. Yeah. Although the Jack Kirby guy in the page boy cap uh, then turns out to be Bull Brogan, who is armed with a cosmic beam gun. Right. Uh, which is a thing that he notes, will turn me back to Ben Grimm. And it'll only last for a few minutes. So he figures this out immediately. This is one of the innumerable times when the thing becomes Ben again, very briefly. Finally, we see Doom behind the whole thing from a hidden vantage point, adjusting his surveillance of the scene. And just when we think we're going to get into that, we're back at the Baxter building with uh, Reed and Sue being domestic and Reed being a complete jerk while Sue's testing her powers and saying, I'm getting really good at it. She is. I, I do love the sort of berserk layout of this page. The, uh, the inks aren't as, um, aren't as, as crisp and well-defined as they are at other places in the issue. Um, it seems like there's a little bit less in terms of like detail and rendering, but uh, I love that, you know, there's three weirdly distinctive demonstrations of Reed's power over the first three panels. Like, it's definitely prime plastic man as opposed to just the stretchiness yeah. that became sort of more his trademark later. But, you know, he's thin as a sheet of paper. He's wrapping around Sue. He's turning into a chain inexplicably. And then we get basically a couple of panels of Sue as pinup and cut to a dramatic knock on the door a dramatic knock on the door from handsome harry who the caption helpfully explains understands women better than reed does yeah well that that is not difficult yeah. uh to, you know to to be honest so does i mean submariner understands understands i would say i would go so far as to say humans better than reed does that's very true, that's um, very true. but but that is again from a possibly slightly more enlightened perspective than uh, was in place when this uh, dialogue was being written by Stanley. Very, very true. Um, but, you know, it is also the case that yeah, Reed doesn't quite get it in a lot of ways. No, no, certainly not. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's, there's more sort of domestic stuff going on. Handsome Harry, like, hands Sue some flowers, but uh, she, you know, smartly held her breath while holding the flowers because she suspected they might be poisoned, which they are. Yes. 
They're poison. She does flowers. however notice how handsome he is. So clearly his name was fitting. That's yes. A nice thought. Uh, turns invisible, tries to stay out of his way, but uh, still gets, like Johnny, gets gassed. And once again, we get a single panel of Doctor Doom, and we think, oh God, what are we going to cut away to this time? But this time, we actually get a little bit more Doom, because uh, Ben appears to be firing his Fantastic Four flare signal, which, when did they stop carrying around the Fantastic Four flare signal gun? Not sure. I mean, it it, yeah. it continues to make occasional appearances here and I guess there. So. Um, but like, where would where would Ben holster it? The, these are questions about the thing that I really. Try yeah, not let's ask. let's not let's not think about that. It's too much. possible. It's possible that it's in his ever present uh, trench coat, right. along with his sunglasses and fedora that he just sort of magically produces whenever he needs to go anywhere. Yeah, but generally he's just walking around in like the little blue shorts from uh, the issue three when he gives up his costume. He's like, nope, I like little blue shorts much better, much better than the superhero outfit. The the thing appears to be summoning Reed, but no, it's actually a thing robot. A thing robot that we will see again in time. Yep. But it's a thing robot and Doom himself, or apparently Doom himself, we don't know that's not a Doombot. We never know that's not a Doombot, who seal him inside a, uh, uh, they basically slab him. They send him off to CGC and they stick him in plastic. Yep. Reed Richards 9.8. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the thing is revealed to be a robot. They take the slab back to... Uh, Doom's private warehouse on a dreary New York side street where uh, the actual thing is chained to the wall by yeah, some kind of electrified wall. thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and really In fact, it's not even entirely clear from the printed page whether that's supposed to be attached to the wall or whether it's just a random manacle that he's holding his arms up. Like It could be like a fire extinguisher he's found somewhere. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty mysterious. Doom disintegrates the thing bot, and then yeah, announces there's that beautifully uncharacteristic, like one third face close up of Doom. Yeah, it's you know ninety percent of Jack Kirby's close ups are either you know screaming head or just that close up of eyes with some dialogue on either side. And yeah. this is a really unique angle, um, which you know showing the newly disintegrated thing robot behind him is just a perfect little bit of visual storytelling the panel before it is just explosion all explosion and it makes me kind of wonder if maybe a panel was added to that tier at some point and we somehow ended up with that half face shot yeah I don't know. doom announces it is time to give my other assistants quotes the reward in the typical dr doom manner amazingly they don't run <laughs> you would think they are each handed a box that he says contains $5,000, but no, it's worth much more than $5,000. It's quote, a priceless dimensional transport machine. I love that he specifies it's priceless, yes. uh, which blinks them into another dimension. Mm -hmm. Doesn't disintegrate them as he just disintegrated the, the thing bot. It sends them to another dimension where they can wait until he needs them again. Yes. It's that, what? And, and again, there's no, you know, there's, that's another place where I have to wonder, like, was there a note for that? Or was that just, you know, was that Stanley in the scripting process being like, well, maybe maybe we'll reuse these guys someday. Like, let's not necessarily kill them off all at once. Yeah, because if you're killing them off, it's a weird visual way to show it. Yeah. 
And if you're not killing them off, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Which, to be fair, is very much in keeping with the rest of the issues. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, it is very much a, a fortunately they survived kind of uh, kind mm -hmm. of setup. Yeah, the Fantastic Four wake up in their kind of mini traps, and Johnny notes that maybe Sue, once she wakes up, can help us with her quote with her new invisible force power. Doom doesn't know she has it. Right. Doom has always missed something. This time, that's what he's missed and <laughs> love the caption later after johnny has explained <laughs> like, yeah. for, it's, a, it's a great little bridging transition there sam good job yeah. for, for once we don't have to sit through the entire explanation twice um the thing uh breaks a reed out of his slab and you know incurs a little bit of uh, damage to the edges that's gonna take some take some points off doom comes back in with what looks like a snow cone machine yeah and in one of what weirdly this is one of because this is the sort of like micro nerdery um i'm terrible at saying like uh, remembering issue numbers or mm. like well this specific in character instance happened here or there but i do notice that this is one of those weird points where rosen as letterer decides that he will put the first word of a caption in cursive <laughs> but at that but, moment yeah and it doesn't match any of like I think there's I think there's one or two other instances in this story where he decides arbitrarily the first word of a caption will be in cursive, but it's this bizarre break from all of the other like visuals of letter forms throughout this issue, and it's it I find it very jarring. It, it's well. The transition there is jarring too. I mean, we've cut from the Fantastic Four breaking free of the trap to suddenly Doom is there and he's got his snow cone machine, or is this like a buffer from a car wash? Like, yeah. he thankfully doesn't really explain what it is, but it's some sort of long metal tube with a white powder puff of some kind on the end that whomps the thing into a wall. It whomps. It's a whomper. It's a whomper, yeah. If. If Jack had been coming up with the name for the thing, he would have called it the Whomper. They fight their way out of their traps. This fight scene goes on for substantially longer than it kind of has to. Reads like half in a glass, shattered glass box, yes. um, conducting all of his business from in there while the thing continues to be whomped. <laughs> then he uh, gets out, wraps his arm in a sort of spiral cord around doom who gets a kind of wee, 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 tasmanian devil effect on him as uh reed is wrapping him up doom then freezes reed somehow and this page page 20 of the story somehow doesn't look very much like kirby to me or looks like looks more like somebody quote doing kirby than kirby like yeah. i don't know the, the layout is really weird. Um, it, it matches, you know, the line work looks no different than sort of the second half of this issue, which, as I said, gets a little cruder and less, uh, less detailed than the inks in the first section. But there's no, there's none of Kirby's usual sort of visual drive. None of the panel to panel transitions. Yeah. It doesn't read well, just in terms of not only in terms of not making sense, but in terms of not really leading the reader in any sort of specific direction. It's just a whole bunch of random things happening. 
Stanley once again kind of makes the best of it, uh, uses this to sort of continue the B-plot of the story, which is Reed freaking out and saying, like, you, you guys are terrible, and the rest of them saying, like, oh, we need a new leader. And this is the group working together as a group and Reed realizing he might have been wrong. He might have been wrong about that. Which is nice, but the fight continues, and with just over two pages left to go, things get unbelievably weird in this story. Yeah, the, this is the point where everything gets hyper compressed, and also what little sort of internal logic there was is just thrown completely out the window. Yeah, uh, and it's fantastic on a level of spectacle. But uh, can can you just try to explain what's what's going on here? Because I'm I'm not really sure I'm I'm even parsing this. Well, I mean, Doctor Doom is hovering, which means he uh, can't be hit by the thing. Right. So he's hovering just out of Ben's reach, uh, and then he's hovering horizontally. He's he's clearly not all that engaged. Yeah. So he's just sort of floating sideways and then jetting around to outrun Johnny. Um, gets behind some sort of steel partition or like gets through the little tiny window with a steel door on it that is conveniently located in the middle of the wall. Yeah. And then we get a far more typical Kirby close-up of like, you know, eyes and doom thinking intently. At a candid angle. Like that is a very Kirby Kirby close-up kind of angle. Yeah. Uh, and he's thinking, Mr. Fantastic did not suspect that I bought this warehouse because my research discovered it is in the path of a solar wave which sweeps the earth every 24 hours. And we turn the page and see that the floor is dissolving and you can see outer space outside and what? Yeah, and then the one of those weird like split panel with narration descriptions that you know, we saw a lot in the first half dozen issues of Fantastic Four, yeah. but it's it's a device that Kirby certainly dispensed with by and large uh, as he progressed through the Marvel Age. So this is one of those instances where it's like, well, there's narration telling us that something's happening with lots of wavy lines. Again, this, this is a point where the coloring really varies from printing to printing. I imagine. Um, in the like I'm working from a copy of the uh, omnibus right now and like it's a bunch of pink wavy lines in the same way that the uh, the one for earlier was like dark blue in this um, it's it's drastically different than the original um, I guess probably Stan Goldberg colors uh, that I remember from the print issue and I'm looking at it in a copy of Marvel's collector's item classics from uh number 17 where the background for the wavy lines is kind of pale blue and doom is inside kind of a purpley chamber yeah uh that's that's wow yeah it's it's even less comprehensible in the uh yeah in the in the more modern colorings where there's a lot of pinks and purples and like very, very strong choices for some value of strong so Reed explains for three panels and Susan says like, yeah, whatever. I don't understand you. So she sends her invisible energy beam through the solid wall to trap doom. Yes. That's not something she can really do is I'm, I'm just going to go with it. Just going to go with it. Uh, 
so the, the room is continuing to dissolve. The floor is giving way to like, sunbursts and fiery stars and ringed planets in outer space. And uh, Doom pokes his head back in and says, Move aside. I've got to find the wires which caused the ionic dust to settle on this room. I don't want to die with you. The world must not lose a magnificent brain like mine. Yeah, which is probably my single favorite piece of Stanley characterization for doom in this issue yeah is, you know he's he's doing it for the world it's a very noble motivation that he has to save himself because the world needs his mind it's but it's also not clear why he's attacking the fantastic four well it, it, no but it, <laughs> but but at this point it's because he's doom because he's the villain like, yeah but you know he captures them and he takes them to his headquarters, which is supposed to dissolve because of solar waves dust. and ionic dust. And like, yeah, it's, it's the entire thing. And one of the reasons I love this issue so much yeah. is this completely bananas quality to it, yeah. which is that there are many places in uh, the history of Marvel right. as a pop culture historian, as a, right. uh, as a nerd where I really sympathize with the situation Jack Kirby was in as a person of, you know, a certain generation working to support his family, uh, yet also having deep artistic motivation and working in a field where pay was meager at best. So I have endless sympathy and empathy for Jack Kirby. He's also, you know, Jack Kirby. He's the right. greatest. He's the person who, he was the first name I knew that was connected to a comic book. Yeah. At the same time, I look at this page and I feel a deep sympathy for Stan Lee trying to dialogue whatever <laughs> showed up on his desk. Yeah. And knowing at this point how much sort of back and forth and revision they were doing at the drop of a hat, how you know panels would sometimes get sliced out of one page and put into another and rearranged, um, how much they must have had to, like even with all of that, even with all the razor blades and whiteout and scotch tape that they had to that this is still the most sensible page that they could make yeah i mean a, a number of guests on the show have brought up the kirby without words blog which you know takes pages fantastic four like let's remove the text for them let's see if there's a different story that presents itself here and you look at this one and there's kind of not no <laughs> it, it is a lot of awesome images it's real spectacular it's gorgeous yeah. it's uh, just you know and then but, doom, like doom falls crawling back through the wall in that final panel crawls like. back through the wall it's i mean it's a great image he uh ben pulls him into the room and then he stumbles and falls off into outer space through yes. the solar wave uh, and reed fantastically says the solar waves might only be attracted to this room Ionic dust is expensive. Doom couldn't have used much of it. So this is the last time we will see Doom before we hear about Latveria. Now, uh, here's here's a question in, in your printing. Um, the panel after he stumbles into space. Right. The oh! Yes. Well, what does it look like in your printing? Uh, it is, there's a white background. There's a purple thing in the foreground. Okay, so... Yeah, yeah. All, all the background colors uh, in the modern printings are different, but there's still a giant red jelly bean just floating yeah. above a planet's surface. Mm -hmm. Just to 
giant, I don't know, a disc, a blob, or whatever. That... I mean, if, if I if I wanted to be really, really Roy Thomas about it, I could say that like it lo- does look a lot like Doom's airship that we saw uh, in in earlier appearance. Yes, or or if you wanted to be super Roy Thomas about it, you would probably, you know, create some story about the cocoon that it is that was created from the remnants of the ionic dust and it became some <laughs> sort of superhuman being that yeah. is actually the reincarnation of this golden age character. Yes, of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no, in the same way that, you know, these pages are uh, frankly um, not exactly linear. There is no, there is no Roy Thomas uh, retcon explanation that cannot be made too convoluted. <laughs> exactly. And I say that with the deepest, deepest affection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Where does this leave us with Doom? What do we know about Doom that we didn't know about before? Well, uh, that he, I mean, we already know that he can get sucked into space and somehow magically reappear some yeah. issues later. Having met the Ovoids. Yeah. This is, is this the, only the second instance at this point of Doom getting spun off into space and returning? Something like that. After number six? Yeah, um, I think so. so. Oh, he gets, he gets shrunk too. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah shrunk to the microverse. Yeah. Okay. We also know that, that his help carries greatly through the soundless void of space, but there's no, it's really just a villain of the month episode. There is, yeah. th- there is very little in there that uh, adds anything to Dr. Doom's characterization aside from, you know, establishing yet even further establishing the precedent for his plans making absolutely no sense. And involving robots. Yes. He will never have to escape after this, or pretty much never, because after this we have Latveria. Mm-hmm. But now we still don't have that. In like the very first Latverian story, we establish he has diplomatic immunity, that so he can just walk off whenever he feels like it. So that might have been some kind of reaction to like, oh God, what are we gonna, how are we how do we how dispense do we with them this time? How do we dispense with them this time? How do we end the story? And also, I, the panel immediately after the help, again, that marvelous close-up of Ben Grimm at the front uh, with yeah. the other three sort of behind as space overtakes the room yeah. therein is such a marvelously dramatic Kirby panel. It's a it, terrific image, yeah. It's another It's another half-face, too. Yeah, it's one of my favorite sort of defining thing panels from this era does this issue just kind of exist as its own thing floating in space Uh, aside from i I think obviously you know i'm i haven't done a comprehensive reread of the ff in a number of years and uh, last time i did it was sort of bound by which back issues i could track down because you know marvel masterworks were still 50 dollars, which was a lot when you're in your 20s and uh and so it's, it was pretty much, you know, my last comprehensive reread certainly had a lot of holes in it. But aside from, you know, further establishing robots and space um, and Sue's force field, this seems to sort of, it seems to just sort of be a hurried, thrown together, like throw everything at the wall and see what sticks sort of issue. Um, at least in my mind. I mean, Reed's a jerk. Thing feels sorry for himself. There's like a little bit of Yancey Street stuff, but... You know, a lot of that is just further explanation of thing feeling bad and holding his head in his hands. You know, the terrible trio show up for a few pages. And even so, it's so exciting. It's, There's so much going on. It's so kinetic. It's so crazy. It, it is pure pop comics. Like, yeah. it, you 
you know, it's, it's the equivalent of that, you know, we have three hours of recording session to record this two and a half minute song. And so we will just crank it out and try to mix it and get everything done in that time. It has that, it has that just sort of crackling energy of, you know, people working at the top of their game. So even the disposable ones end up having amazing charm and merit. The glory of it is in the fact that it's ridiculous and it's sort of almost disposable nature in that it doesn't matter and it doesn't particularly care. It is just throwing everything at you and moving so quickly with so much pure visceral energy that it ends up being by default one of my favorite issues of (laughs) the first uh, half of the Lee Kirby FF partnership because it's logic does not apply yeah it's just gorgeous fun explosion of ideas and energy the it's basically speed racer the movie in comic form (laughs) yeah yeah on a on a somewhat smaller cgi budget patrick a reed thank you so much again we've got some listener mail to answer here uh this week it's from mark hibbett who is getting a doctorate in doom he's literally doing his phd dissertation on doom as a hyperdiegetic hero we salute you. Uh, Mark writes, Firstly, if you've read all the Marvels, why did you choose to focus on Doom rather than any other character? Is it just that everyone else is adult in comparison, or was there more to it? Well, uh, I needed a hook for the podcast. I wanted a particular character to concentrate on. I looked for a while at a bunch of characters who've shown up in a number of different contexts across the 60-year Marvel story, and really of those, of characters who appear in lots of different comics and maybe don't even have a home-based comic to call their own, but appear in lots of different ways, Doom was absolutely the most interesting of those. We've seen him in all sorts of situations. We've seen him in comedies. We've seen him in tragedies. We've seen him in histories. He is a Shakespearean character in that way, as in so many other ways. He's cool. He's interesting. He's arguably misunderstood, arguably actually correctly understood. And he speaks to a lot of the themes of the big Marvel Comics story. Monsters, what makes somebody monstrous or heroic, the way that characters can change, the way that everyone has their own reasons and their own motives, and they can evolve and become somebody different from who they were. All of that is very much in the Doom story, and there's lots of ways to talk about it and lots of ways to have guests talk about it, too. So it just seemed like a natural thing. Mark also writes, how did you choose which comics to include in the course of this podcast? He says, I hugely appreciated the academic research that went into putting Invaders 32 and 33 where it is. But how much does Doom need to appear in an issue to get it included? I understand omitting FF number 14, as he's only in that one as an image on a TV screen, but what about issues like Thor 271, where he's definitely there, but only in a single panel? That's a tricky question. It's a question I'm going to be weighing as this podcast goes on. As I've mentioned a couple times before, I'm covering everything in continuity order, uh, in the order that it happened to Doom himself rather than specific continuity order. So not the order that things happened within the Marvel timeline, but the order in which Doom, with benefit of his time platform, experienced things. 
And my dividing line at the moment is, does Doom actually do something in that issue? In the Fantastic Four story, he's just on TV screen. In the Thor story you mentioned, he's there. But if you took that panel out of the story, you would still have the exact same story. He doesn't really do anything much. So I'll probably leave that out, absent some very interesting reason to include it. I reserve the right to change my mind. In any case, thank you so much for your letter, Mark. Thank you also for signing off. Thanks and all hail Lord Doom. And if you, our listeners, have any questions about anything having to do with Dr. Doom or the show or Latvian culture in general that you'd like us to answer on the show, the address to email them to is faithfulretainerboris at voiceoflatveria.com. Next week, I'll be talking about a pivotal issue for Victor Von Doom, Fantastic Four Annual Number 2 with special guest Abraham Riesman. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get address to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel Nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflatveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Wolk for the VOL. Zero, zero, nine. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, nine. Tomorrow, on Arts Colloquy, we cast the spotlight on Bernard the Poet, the Bard of Bensonhurst, a thinker, a rhymer, a prankster, a beatnik, a social reformer, and ultimately, one of the classic voices of his generation. Today, Bernard's thoughts on the environment and his impressions of urban culture and its relationship to the natural world are seen as remarkably forward-looking. We chart his journey from his humble beginnings at the coffee at Gogo to the present day, when children all over the world recite his poems at school. That's Arts Colloquy, tomorrow on the VOL this concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies until you die. (laughs) 